Good afternoon, everyone. I'm logging in from Korea and the eastern part of the world. And good morning to you all viewing from the West. Um, my name is Kelly E, Chief Representative of HKIC So Office. To briefly introduce myself, I am a US and uh, England and Wales dual qualified attorney and have been with HKIC for, the, for over two years now. Prior to joining HKIC, um, I practiced international arbitration at an international law firm and also as an in-house counsel for a Korean company. Um, during my various roles, um, I have worked on numerous hearings and worked with many experts in the fields of law, quantum, delay, and more. Uh, they play a critical role, as you know, in assisting the tribunal with um, specialized professional expertise um, in areas such as technical assessments, market evaluations, financial analysis, calculation of lost profits claims, assessments of defect malfunctions, reasons for delay and disruption, and to just name a few. Um, from a client's perspective, not only is it critical to the case outcome, but experts can be a costly burden as well. Um, it is a very important topic. Um, and we have here three arbitration specialists um, to discuss this important topic of role of experts and how to manage them. First, we have Matthew Gearing, QC, a partner at Allen & Noble's Global Arbitration Group. As you all know, he's a leading arbitration practitioner um, and has acted in large numbers of complex and high-profile arbitrations around the world, both commercial and investor uh, investment treaty arbitrations. Um, he was appointed Queen's Counsel in February 2014 and is also a solicitor advocate qualified in Hong Kong. He acts both as an advocate and as an arbitrator in international arbitration matters. Uh, he was also chairman of HKIC from 2017 to 2020. And he also serves as a co-chair of LCIA uh, Young International Arbitration Group and is also on Prime Finance's panel of dispute resolution. Um, second, we also have Jane Evans um, as a panel speaker who is a dual qualified barrister and chartered accountant. Um, very unique background. And Jane is a distinguished international arbitration practitioner who also acts as lead or co-counsel on the case and also as an arbitration arbitrator herself. Um, she is ranked in the legal 500 and chambers for energy dispute, construction, and international arbitration matters. Um, lastly, but not least, we also have Myung-An Kim, a partner senior foreign attorney uh, who co-heads um, Young and Yun and Yang's international arbitration and dispute resolution team. She practices primarily in the areas of international dispute resolution, shipping, commodities, aviation, insurance, and trade. And prior to joining Yun and Yang, she has uh, experience working for another Korean firm and also worked at an international law firm in Singapore. Uh, Ms. Kim has successfully represented a number of domestic and international entities in ICC, CIAC, DIS, LMAA, HKIC, and KCAB arbitrations. Um, as you have just heard, uh, all our speakers are very well qualified, and I am very excited to have our speakers share their experiences and perspectives on this important topic. Now, as to the format, um, our individual speakers will each present on their topic uh, with the slides you see on the screen, uh, which will be followed by a panel discussion on the topic presented. The 
process repeated for each speaker, and we will end with a Q&A session. So please provide any inquiries or questions you may have in the Q&A box on the screen as you follow us and on this webinar, and we will deal with it at the end of the webinar. Uh, I look forward to this interactive engagement, and now I will pass along to Matthew to um, kick off uh, the uh, presentation with this section. Sorry, let me, let me forward to, there you go. Thank you, Matthew. Matt, we can't hear you. I think you're on mute. Hello. There we go. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, afternoon, um, and early evening for a few of you. Um, it's obviously a pleasure to be um, talking, particularly, of course, at an HKIC event, an institution that's obviously extremely close to my heart, as a lot of you know. Uh, I'm going to just kick the ball off or start the ball rolling with a few observations on experts, um, a few personal observations really on experts in the context of international arbitration. And I will try and weave in, in the course of the next 10 or 15 minutes, um, a, a couple of war stories, including a very interesting story involving Korean experts um, in the context of a recent Seoul-based arbitration that I was um, involved in. Um, in any event, let me set out the two questions, very simple questions, if you like. The first is, who can be an wit expert witness in international arbitration? And the second is just to explore a little bit, um, only a little bit, the difference between legal experts and non-legal experts and how one might manage the two. Indeed, as counsel, does one need to behave differently as between a legal expert and a non-legal expert? Kelly, can we go to the next slide, please? Um, who can be an expert? Um, I've written there somewhat provocatively on the screen, anyone. Um, of course, that's a glib answer and I'm entirely correct, but... Um, it is true that almost anyone can at least offer their services as an expert. Um, the, they're, they're, as, as with much in arbitration, there are no hard and fast rules or there are few hard and fast rules. Um, so when you're selecting your expert, um, if indeed you're going down the route of a party appointed expert, you will have a bewildering array of choice um, indeed, as clients do of legal advisors these days, um, as relatively well-known counsel in international arbitration, um, we, all of us, probably, certainly I do, get emails all the time from people offering their services to me and indirectly to my clients as experts. So how does one filter? How, how does one choose? And how does one work out whether they have the, re the requisite expertise? We'll come back to that point a little bit in a moment. Um, in any event, just on this slide, um, I just draw two very simple distinctions. And um, forgive me if they are too obvious, but I think they are the starting points. First of all, of course, when one talks about an expert, one could be talking about um, a tribunal, ex a tribunal appointed expert, um, i.e. an expert appointed directly by the tribunal and subject to certain rules 
um, giving evidence directly to the tribunal, acting for the tribunal, if you like, and perhaps most commonly a testifying expert, um, i.e. an expert appointed by the parties, um, by a party or a group of parties to appear and give evidence to the tribunal. Um, that is the common distinction that you see in the HKIC rules and indeed in almost every set of rules that I'm aware of. Um, of course, the second of those, the so-called testifying expert, is the common, is, is very much the common option, um, and um, perhaps more subject for a separate webinar is the question of um, whether tribunals use the facility of a tribunal expert enough. Um, in my experience, I don't think they do. It's a very underused feature. So when we're talking about experts in this context, the discussion naturally moves quite quickly to testifying experts. Um, on the other hand, I've used a rather inelegant term there, dirty experts, so-called dirty experts or non-testifying experts um, are experts who simply, and I don't, by saying simply, I don't diminish their role, but um, join the counsel or client team, the case team, if you like, and assist the client and counsel in the presentation of the case, but do not appear as a witness or certainly do not appear as an independent witness. Um, and in complex cases, certainly in complex construction cases, it would be quite common for a party to have both a testifying expert and a so-called dirty expert. Um, in the second bullet point there, I've touched a little bit on the distinction between party versus tribunal experts, so I won't say anything more about that at the moment. Um, can we, Kelly, please then turn to the next slide? I said at the outset, somewhat glibly, anyone could be an expert. Um, in fact, there are two um, qualifications, or there are two criteria that one really needs to look for. Um, the first is, of course, um, requisite expertise, and the second is independence, or I should have probably written on that slide, independence and impartiality. Um, as to requisite expertise, when you are choosing an expert, um, it is very common, it's very, very common to have to take a, make a choice between choosing someone who is a so-called professional or full-time expert. So someone who works um, full-time, whose full-time job now is really presenting uh, expert evidence uh, to national courts or to arbitration tribunals. And forensic accounting um, experts um, would very commonly fall into that bracket. They're people who may have practiced as accountants some time ago, but now practice full-time as experts. That's the first bullet point under one. The second bullet point, um, which was more common previously, I think it's less common now, is those who are expert, uh, those who act as experts who have another day job, if you like. So um, people who practice full-time in their main profession and give expert evidence as an incidental function or a byproduct of what they do. Um, not so relevant to international arbitration, but in the context of medical negligence, it certainly used to be the case, my understanding, that 
um, doctors who would appear as experts in the context of medical ne negligence cases, a lot of them would obviously also continue to practice, you know, during the day in their day job um, as, as, as doctors in the, in the ordinary course. But these days in the context of international arbitration, certainly in the context of um, damages and related issues, very often one would be choosing a full-time expert. Um, and then secondly, there is the question of independence. Um, and there are just uh, two or three points to mention briefly here. Firstly, um, the safest view, of course, these rules vary jurisdiction by jurisdiction, um, is that an expert witness owes a fiduciary duty to a client. Um, this takes us all the way back to a well-known English decision that I had a very walk-on part in, in uh, Prince Geoffrey Balkyra and KPMG in 1999, which concerned, as the name of the case would suggest, um, the role that the accountancy firm KPMG could or could not perform um, in respect of um, the brother of the Sultan of Brunei, Prince Geoffrey Balkaya, following a role that they had performed um, in an earlier dispute in which um, Alan and Overy were acting for certain Bruneian entities. And what that what effectively that case said was well in those circumstances kpmg acting as an expert um had acted effectively in a uh, at a quasi legal function although certainly very much closely alongside alan novius legal advisors they had therefore in the course of their duties assumed a fiduciary duty to the client and they couldn't essentially turn around and then act for an adverse party to that client um there have been further cases um, that have explored that concept a great many of them, and I certainly haven't listed them all here. Um, of most recent note are two cases. Um, the first is A Company in X, which is a decision of the um, construction court division, if you like, of the High Court in the UK, um, where an injunction was granted last year to prevent an expert witness um, from acting um, for a party in arbitration proceedings concerning a petrochemical plant in circumstances where a colleague of that expert in the same, not in the same actual entity, but in the same overall group, um, was already acting for the other party in separate, but apparently related arbitration proceedings. Um, and I've also listed on the slide a very similar case, although the decision went the other way, um, in an ICSID case involving Rwanda, Bayview Group in Rwanda, where, as the slide says, the tribunal dismissed an attempt to disqualify Rwanda's legal expert on the basis that as managing partner of a local law firm, that expert had previously provided legal advice to um, not exactly one of the claimants, but a related party or a predecessor of one of the claimants on issues uh, relevant to the proceedings. Um, that challenge, unlike the A company v X company case, that, that the Rwanda challenge didn't work, um, but um, the point is essentially the same. Now, in terms of um, independence, um, that is essentially to be safeguarded by disclosure. Um, 
in that um, almost these days, whatever system you're working in, um, the expert has to state, as arbitrators have to state clearly, um, the full, full details of their relationship with the parties, the tribunal, and importantly, counsel. And this is important because um, counsel do tend, and, and, and I'm no different in this regard, do tend to use the same experts in more than one case. And if you have instructed, for example, a forensic expert in several cases, um, that would need to be disclosed and that might be taken into account when considering um, or seeking to impugn the independence of that expert. Can we, Kelly, can we turn on please to the next slide? Um, the short point I want to make here um, is that I, I feel at least, and this is very much a personal comment, that um, parties are too quick to rush to getting a slew of so-called testifying experts in a case. Um, the ICC in their recent and I think very good uh, document, the techniques for controlling time and cost in arbitration, have said the starting point, it's a simple point, but they've said the starting point should be that there is a presumption against adducing expert evidence um, to be departed from only in a clear case. Um, what tends to happen is that um, one party will say that they need to adduce expert evidence in the following disciplines, you know, A, B and C, and the respondent will then engage experts in, the, in those disciplines um, on, a, as I've said in the slide, a so-called tit for tat basis. And then one gets a, a sort of an arms race of experts. And before you know it, you have a slew of experts. And of course, that will increase costs, not just the cost of the expert, but the cost of all the, of, of the lawyers in instructing and dealing with the experts intensively. Um, perhaps before the parties have really clear, carefully focused on the issues um, that they are um, seeking to develop by way of expert evidence. Kelly, can we turn on, please? Um, Sorry, the um, implicit in what I've just said is that I think that um, tribunals should do more or certainly should strictly control the scope of expert evidence, um, so-called testifying evidence. Um, I won't run through all the points in the interest of time, but it is clear that the tribunal has the power to control expert evidence in advance, whether the tribunal is sitting under the HKOC rules or indeed again under, I think, almost every set of major rules of which I am aware. I've listed on that slide um, three possible tribunal approaches, very little control um, or no control, I should say. Um, the second is defining the scope of expert evidence um, in advance, um, i.e. engaging with the parties, but in a collaborative way, um, not seeking to overly control them, but at least being clear about what expert evidence is going to be adduced later in the proceedings, in what form and according to what timings and so on. Um, and thirdly, is being a little bit more proactive and um, being bold or brave enough 
to refuse permission if expert evidence does not appear to be necessary. Now, this, this final point on this slide may be a point for discussion later. Um, where or common areas where one might wish to adduce expert evidence, obviously damages, um, that, that, that I think is the area that comes to light, um, comes, comes to mind first and foremost when one is thinking about experts, um, obviously not where there is only a claim for a liquidated ascertained sum, but wherever, for example, one is talking about um, uh, trying to quantify a claim uh, for lost profits, for example, whether DCF or otherwise, or invariably one will need an expert. Um, construction disputes, of course, um, delay claims analysis, extremely common in construction, heavy construction cases, and of course, other technical questions. Um, thirdly, when one is dealing with uh, complex products, um, such as, for example, derivatives, uh, certainly something I've come across quite a lot, one may well need an expert to explain in the proper legal context those products to the arbitration tribunal. And I've listed on the slide there an example of a case, Deutsche Bank against Sri Lanka, where an expert gave very clear evidence on behalf of Sri Lanka of the nature of the relevant derivative, which very much assisted the tribunal in reaching its relevant decision in that case. Um, more controversially um, are the final two points. First of all, where, where experts give evidence on so-called general industry practice, um, very often as a backdoor way of trying to give evidence, I think, on the construction of the contract. Um, that um, appears closer to the line to me, but we can perhaps uh, discuss that during the Q&A if helpful. And, and then, of course, um, experts giving evidence on um, points of law. And on that um, last point, let me just say something briefly. Kelly, can you turn to the, my, what I think is my last slide? Um, should questions of so-called foreign law be the subject of expert evidence? Well, of course, the starting point is that um, in the true approach to arbitration, there is no foreign law because in international arbitration is, of course, a, um, a, an international instrument. And very often, of course, you'll have tribunals qualified in um, different systems of law and sometimes qualified in no systems of law at all. So. Um, the, the, the strict answer to that is that there is not the distinction between, or there shouldn't be the distinction between um, a national law or the national law and a foreign court, foreign law that, for example, one finds in the national courts. Um, but nonetheless, parties very often do seek to reduce evidence of um, law by way of legal experts. Um, in treaty cases, ICSID cases or UNSATRAL, et cetera, cases brought under treaties, it is extremely common to bring forth le um, legal experts, very often experts on the proper operation of various concepts in public international law, umbrella clauses or whatever the case may be. Now, I think depending on the tribunal, that's not always necessary, but certainly it's what um, 
it's what parties seek to do. I think in commercial arbitration, um, um, it's less justified. Um, the starting point should certainly be um, that all questions of law are questions of submission to be made by you know, one or more counsel, including counsel, of course, qualified um, in the relevant system of law, if the parties wish. Um, there is, I think, a narrow, but I think it is a narrow role for legal experts where the point of law is really obscure or unclear. And I mentioned at the outset that um, I've been involved in a case in Seoul where that was, was certainly the case, where the case arguably turned on a point of Korean law, um, which was, in all honesty, extremely uncertain, where there were conflicting decisions um, of the Seoul, of, of various courts, but, but particularly of the Seoul District Court. And there was a question of effectively what was the correct answer to this point in circumstances where the Korean Supreme Court had not yet pronounced upon the point. It wasn't open or the tribunal decided that it wasn't open to them to simply stay the proceedings and wait to see what the Korean Supreme Court would say about this point when invariably it got um, it when invariably it reached it. So in that case, there was a very useful assistance from Korean professors of law um, to seek to educate and persuade the tribunal on this point. But that, I think, is a relatively rare case. Um, that's all I wish to say at the outset. I'm sorry I have, um, as usual, slightly overrun my time. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew, for your presentation. Uh, Matthew mentioned the tick and tat, um, which took me down memory lane. I remember working on an arbitration of a construction dispute where uh, just because of that tick and tat process, we ended up having over 10 experts, testifying experts on each side, uh, which was a huge burden of cost and time. So um, yeah, I, I do also agree with Matthew that it could be, become a very problematic issue. Uh, Matthew also quoted the ICC commission uh, uh, recommendation um, that there should be a presumption against adducing expert evidence, but there are often some cases where uh, the whole dispute boils down to a battle of the experts. And um, some firms employ strategic hiring or making increase, inquiries to top experts to preserve them early on or ensure they're conflicted out of the case. Um, I just wanna open up the floor to um, Jane and Myungan and uh, of course, Matthew, on whether you have seen this practice and what the issues may be on conflict of interest. Uh, should I start with you, Eugene? Yes, certainly. I mean, I do, I practice a lot in the construction sector. And so we will often have many, many experts appearing. Though I think to some extent, there is a bit of a pushback in that because a lot of law firms, I think, use and I used to work in law firms before being at the bar I think you see this quite often because that some of the large construction cases are so fact heavy that quite often it can be easier to some extent to push the facts onto the experts especially the delay experts and things and and even a lot of the quantum experts in construction and that you'll find that they're actually managing the facts 
rather than spending more time doing that than what they're actually there for, which is to give their opinion on specific issues. And so I think there is sometimes a bit of a pushback on that. And certainly I've seen that say in delay, because some of the delay analysis you see on very large mega projects now becomes almost meaningless because the schedules are so large, they were never created for the purposes of doing delay analysis, they're created for the purposes of project management. And people essentially are trying to use these schedules for purposes they're not really intended. And there starts becoming really quite a divergence between reality and then what's the what the computer says. And I think at that point, actually, people are saying, actually, let's strip out a lot of that expert evidence and get back to you know the facts. Delay is caused by you know, factual things happening, actually hearing from the people who were on the project at the time, the project managers, the site managers, et cetera, and having them explaining the impact of certain events on the project, I often feel is more um, persuasive to the tribunal than having a an expert who's uh, you know, presenting this very complicated sort of computer-based um, delay analysis, which doesn't really tell you what it just tells you what the computer says the answer is it doesn't tell you what actually was delaying the project um, at the time thank you Jane. Uh, um, yes I, yeah thank you kelly i do concur with the general assessment by our panelists i think um by way of just example, the timing and the scope of the expert evidence that you'd adduce for the tribunal would matter uh, as a matter of strategy and quite frankly, as a matter of uh, maximizing the efficiency in the best interest of the client. However, as uh, Matthew and Jane helpfully noted, there are certain areas and sometimes evolving technological areas in which experts' opinions do matter uh, and you know, depending on the stage at which that opinion becomes vital, it's going to be a matter of collaboration between the clients and the council to uh, manage and adjust the scope and the technological issues that will be at play. By way of example, I am thinking of uh, the role of a cryptocurrency, for, for instance, um, how that becomes relevant in terms of trading, how that becomes relevant in terms of uh, technological glitches or room for manipulation by a certain party it can become an issue. And uh, along with some of the traditional classical areas that we've seen, you know, shipbuilding disputes, construction disputes that are obviously one of the predominant areas in dispute resolution and international arbitration. It's going to be an interesting uh, arena for us to observe in uh, kind of seeing the recent trend and how they can become relevant in uh, strategizing and narrowing the scope or expanding the scope, depending on the nature of the case and disputes. Thank you, Milan. Um, while I have you on, um, I think it would be helpful to provide the viewers uh, on insight on your experience working in Korea for Korean clients. Um, employing ex you have worked on various types of international disputes for Korean clients and foreign. Um, and when you're working with a Korean client or against, um, and you've employed experts, um, are there any distinguishing factors that you have come across that relate to Korean party related cases? Thank you, Kelly. I mean, there is an old uh, proverb in Korean which says, and uh, roughly translated, it means, you know, incremental, subtle errors that remain undetected, 
uh, undetected can lead to catastrophic results. And so in terms of dealing with arbitrations and expert evidence, uh, it does bear certain relevance uh, uh, as well. Um, in civil jurisdictions such as Korea, we've seen you know, a number of commonalities across the board, just because we are basing our arbitration in, uh, in Korea or a seat of arbitration in Korea, or even appearing before the tribunal comprised of, of civil law trained uh, members, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a drastic shift in the way we formulate and present the facts and the evidence. However, as you helpfully noted, Kelly, there are certain subtleties or cultural uh, dichotomies that can come into play. For example, we've seen um, certain uh, characteristics amongst uh, uh, the civil law trained uh, practitioners. There's generally uh, an orientation or propensity, if you will, to be statute driven. And so they seem to uh, place more credence uh, on uh, the regulations and the legal principles stipulated by domestic codes, as opposed to say, a US litigators who may be more used to individual facts driven uh, case law or precedents. And then uh, I've also personally seen some deductive way of analysis or framework of analysis where civil law arbitrators may tend to approach a legal problem by you know, starting with a general legal principle and then applying that principle to given facts. Um, they are likely to be less used to or less familiar with aggressive document production requests uh, or adversarial cross-examination styles. And so um, it's difficult to say which one of those styles uh, would prevail or is more preferred. But uh, being aware or well aware of these subtleties or cultural differences could uh, be quite helpful in uh, addressing your disputes in uh, the interest of your clients. Thank you, Myung-an. Um, that was really helpful. We have uh, one of our viewers um, who had put in a comment regarding this um, presentation. I'll read that out to you guys. Controlled by the tribunal of the experts, uh, he presented two ideas. Uh, one, do not permit expert evidence with first exchange of memorial, uh, memorials, pleadings, so that issues can be identified first. And second, to use protocol of uh, CIARB to narrow expert evidence by reference to issues validated by tribunal and only in reports exchanged after without prejudice discussions between the experts so that they are focused from the outset on areas of disagreement. I think these are really great two points. Um, any um, comments on this or have you had run by a tribunal who employed these um, mechanisms and did you find that um, persuasive or effective? I, I, Absolutely. I, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 you go first. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I chime, I echo uh, that view. At the end of the day, it's not about academic debate. It's about presenting a practical resolution to the dispute um, that's uh, on the table and you know, setting out at an early stage what type of questions and at what stage do you have your dispute addressed by the expert and expert opinion could be quite critical in uh, you know, making sure that you have the efficiency necessary and that you're not really creating unnecessary delay in you know, proceeding with the arbitration process. 
with that, Matthew, I could also defer to you. Yeah, I'm 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 violently agreeing with you, and and indeed the the the, the question or the two comments in the question or the comment I think were extremely extremely pertinent, and I have seen a couple of cases where tribunals have done that. So essentially, they order um, an exchange, if you like, a, a pleading exchange without evidence or certainly without expert evidence but a pleading exchange the purpose of which is really to help to identify the issues now sometimes tribunals may feel they can do that um, by reference to the request for arbitration and the answer or the notice of arbitration and the answer but in complex cases of course that won't that won't be possible in most cases that won't be possible um, so they could then, and, and sometimes do, order an exchange effectively, a sort of a bare bones pleading of the issue, um, so they can then identify and properly control expert evidence. But it rarely happens. Um, and it also takes quite a brave tribunal to say to a party, no, you cannot have expert evidence in that area. Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly my experience is more the tribunal lets the evidence in, but they may express a view as to whether it's necessary. And if they consider it's unnecessary, they'll either give it very little weight or that they would have, it would have an impact on costs allocation. So they might, I've certainly seen tribunals early on say, do you really need, for example, a local law expert? Because of course they know, as Matthew said, the moment one person turns up with a local law expert, the other side sort of feels they have to because you don't want to be in the position that, you know, it's you don't have an expert speaking on, on a particular topic. So I've certainly seen tribunals do that. And but also what's important is then when they get to the end, but they actually sort of they do what they've said. And if you didn't need the expert evidence that they they don't award costs in that in relation to that. Thank you, Jane. Um, this is a great topic, a lot of this great discussions going on, but due to time, I'm going to go ahead and move on uh, to Jane's presentation. Uh, Jane will um, hopefully cover the cross-examination of expert witnesses in international arbitration. Jane, I pass on to you. Great, thank you very much. So if we could have the next slide, please. And I put this slide up because I think this quote's quite helpful because be it even if you're an experienced counsel or maybe if you're a junior associate being asked to help prepare cross-examination for the partners you work for, it can be a little daunting if you're thinking, well, I'm just a lawyer and suddenly I've got to cross-examine or prepare cross-examination for maybe one of the world's leading experts on a very technical issue. And so something that I often would say to the juniors was, remember this, that you know the expert is someone knows more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about nothing. And I think that's quite, it's, it's quite important to remember that. Yes, they might be an expert, but in most arbitrations, the really important issue where their opinion of the expert might turn the case will be on a very, very discreet issue. So you need to master their expertise to the point you can cross-examine the expert um, credibly before the tribunal in most cases in relation to a very, very small issue as well. So it's not, you know, I need to know everything about satellite technology. It's I need to know about this one particular valve or something. And so that makes your job um, a little bit easier from the beginning You know, to, when, when you're thinking, how do I approach that? And then if we could have the next slide, please, Kelly. 
And then just a few basics. Now, these some of these basics apply whether you're cross-examining fact witnesses or experts. But I think it is important to think when you're cross-examining the experts, in international arbitration will typically be working on a chess clock. So you'll have, you'll have a certain number of hours allocated to present your case to cross-examine people. And typically in, in international arbitration, our hearings will be very short. I mean, as in construction, a case that might sometimes sit for 12 weeks, maybe even 12 months in court, you'll often do in 12 days at most in arbitration, which means again, that you won't be cross-examining experts for weeks on end. You'll be cross-examining them for maybe two days at the most. And quite often you'll only be cross-examining somebody for a few hours. And in reality, in a few hours, there's only so many issues you could cover. So you need to focus your time very carefully. But again, going back to that, how am I going to get on top of this expertise? You only need to get on top of this, the particular bits of the expertise that you're going to be focusing on for a relatively short period of time. I also think an important issue is whether the experts have been in the room during the hearing or not. And to some extent that will depend on the type of expert. I think a legal expert, it probably doesn't matter because they're just giving the evidence on the law. But if you've got, a, for example, a delay expert or some other type of technical expert or a quantum expert whose evidence very much relies on the what are essentially assumed facts at the time that they prepare their opinions, it's important, in my view, that they've heard the evidence and ideally actually physically heard it rather than just read the transcript. So that by the time they come to give evidence, you can say to them, well, you will have heard Mr. So-and-so admit that in fact, there was only 10,000 tons of feedstock available a month, not 100,000 tons of feedstock a month. So you need to adjust your valuation or, or things like that. So it's quite important that they are in the room and certainly to the extent that I'm able to control the process, either as counsel making submissions to the tribunal or in the tribunal, I would normally insist that the experts are actually in the room and hearing the evidence in person. I think another issue is whether they're going to testify under oath or not. And traditionally, I'd say that experts generally didn't testify under oath in international experience and in international arbitration. That was certainly my experience at the beginning. Now, I'd say it's more common that they will testify under oath. Um, and, and, and I think that's quite sensible. It just, again, makes everybody more aware um, of, of the importance of what they're doing because of course in international arbitration and one of the joys of international arbitration is it brings people together from multiple jurisdictions multiple cultures and multiple backgrounds and something that might seem completely normal to me or to Matthew might seem completely alien to somebody else who's come from a different background so just making sure that the, everybody's under oath and testifying I think can be quite helpful so if we could have the next slide please and, that, and there's one more slide on sort of the context. And again, um, you need to be careful on your particular jurisdiction. But unlike many courts um, where there's a very strict rule, certainly in common law courts, that you should put your case, as it were, to a witness um, during cross-examination if you're going to be challenging their evidence in your closing submissions, um, in, you don't necessarily have to do that in international arbitration. So I very much take the view out, most of the time, I'm only going to be cross-examining somebody on a point 
if doing so is likely to improve my client's position. Um, you do need to, I do say check your jurisdiction because there have been some cases where, where courts have set aside awards or sent them back to the arbitrators where um, a particular issue upon which a, a tribunal found a point hadn't been put to a key witness or expert. So you do need to be careful on that. But generally you can choose the areas you're going to cross-examine. And for me, I'll long be thinking, every time I ask someone a question in cross-examination, I'm giving the other side two or three opportunities to improve their case. So I'm constantly thinking, sort of looking at things, thinking, okay, here's my case, there's my their case. If I ask this question, is mine going to go up or is theirs going to, and theirs go down? Or is there a possibility that their case will go up, their case will improve in front of the eyes of the tribunal? And they might give a good answer to the question I've asked, or they might be asked questions in re-examination, or they might, for tribunal, you might have peaked for tribunal's interest because they'll think you've only got a short period with this expert. You've asked them a question about this. You must think it's important. Therefore, they'll ask some questions as well. And each time they might be able to improve. If I could have the next slide, please. So then when we're looking at what do you need to achieve during your cross-examination? So, I, and I'll always be looking at this both in relation to the witnesses of fact and the experts in parallel, because of course it's that point you're experts and particularly your technical experts they're giving evidence based on assumed facts so you might need to un, you'll need to attack those assumed facts that are important to them when you're cross-examining the witnesses of fact but also for the experts because I tend to do commercial arbitration my main focus is where is the money if I was doing public international law cases, I might not be so worried about the money and I might be worried about matters of principle, but in commercial arbitration, it's almost always about the money. So I'll be saying, what, where are the big numbers in this arbitration coming from? And that's where I'm gonna focus on my expert cross-examination. So if I could have the next slide, please, Kelly. So again, looking at what topics I might have to cross-examine, I'll, I'll, I'll ask my own witnesses, my expert, the client, you know, for, for where they think there are issues that I really should be asking. Do a lot of research into the background. And of course, now with social media, with LinkedIn and things, there's so much more research we can now do in relation to the background to our experts than we used to be able to do previously. And then in particular for experts, I'll be looking at industry professional literature. You know, experts will often adopt a particular methodology, a particular valuation approach or an, a methodology to assess delay or to measure the quality of feedstock or whatever your arbitration is about. And I'll be looking, is the approach that they're adopting recognized or have they just come up with something of their own? Um, is it approved? It might be that it's an approved approach, but it's not appropriate in the particular circumstances of that case. Um, and also then very important to check whether the expert has actually done what they've said, because you'll often see, find an expert saying, I've, done, I've adopted this approach, but actually when you go through the detail of what they've done, they haven't actually done that. They've done something different or they've maybe done it incorrectly. And so I'd say that's why I have my check, check and check again. You know, keep on checking, it's the detail. You can often undermine these very technical experts in the detailed schedules to their reports um, because that's where you're most likely to find the errors. You know, they've got the wrong dates, the calculations been set up wrong. You know, all these other issues there that you can find can be a very fertile ground for, for areas for cross-examination. And it's also very difficult, I find, I mean, I know I, I'm an accountant as well, but it's very difficult for a, for a quantum expert. If you can identify a few errors in their schedules under cross-examination, it's very difficult for them to be able to say, 
on the hoof while they're in the test testifying what the impact of correcting those errors would be to their overall valuation. You can just say, look, it's just not reliable what they've done would be the ultimate submission you'd be going for under that type of cross-examination. So if I could have the next slide, please. So this slide just summarizes the types of witnesses. And here in particular, we'd be looking at the right-hand column, the experts, and what are they actually testifying on? So you've got your legal experts, evidence of the relevant law, and your technical experts, as I said, it's their opinion based on assumed facts. So I think that's always important to have that in mind when you're thinking, what am I going to cross-examine? Because that's really what they should be focusing on. And as I said earlier in the comment in the panel discussion just now, you'll often find that they, they talk about a lot of other stuff as well, but certainly on a strict view, that's not really within the, um, the parameters of what their expert opinion should be. And if we could look at the next slide, please. And so I now have the next two slides, just have a sort of quick checklist that I often use when I'm preparing a cross-examination or asking a junior to help prepare cross-examination of areas that I might be going to cross-examine on. So you've got the first one is general credibility. You know, are, do they have the right qualifications? Do they actually have the qualifications they say they have? It's surprising the number of people who lie on their, um, on, on their CVs that they submit in arbitrations. And you can go away now, it's often relatively easy to check. Did somebody actually really have the degree that they say they have? And things you can do that check. Also their experience, um, because for me to be an expert, it's qualifications plus relevant experience. And I'm, one thing I'll see quite often now is that a lot of people will have an awful lot of experience working as an expert not that much experience in what they're testifying on. Um, and so I quite often spend time getting to understand you know, exactly what their experience has. I mean, to take an extreme example, I was cross-examining someone recently who had been put forward as a technical engineering expert. His CV just looked a little bit odd and we were able to get him to admit that in fact, he only had three months experience working in the field in which he was purporting to be an expert. And I actually, at that point, I made the decision, I checked with the client, I made the decision, I wasn't going to cross-examine him at all, because I was like, you're not an expert. I'm not going to waste you know, X days of my life cross-examining you when you have no real value to add to this arbitration at all. You've also got sort of undisclosed conflicts and things like that can be important as well. But I always think that general credibility issue, you do just need to keep an eye on the tribunal because you're sort of playing the man rather than the ball in some sense. Some tribunals like that. And if you get some big hits, it might mean that you actually say, I'm not going to cross-examine this expert at all because they're not really, or they'll be what I would call an expert in, in commas rather than a true expert. But you'd see that. If it's a legal expert and moving on to the substance, I'm often very light in cross-examination of legal experts, unless they're clearly wrong and clearly um, ignoring you know, precedent. Um, I would generally be, be light um, and leave it to the, the tribunal. I find the tribunals often actually are more interested in asking questions of the legal experts than hearing cross-examination. So I don't tend to, to cross-examine my legal experts extensively, um, but, I, but I may do. It would depend on the particular case. If we could have the next slide, please, Kelly. 
And then looking at, at the next slide, I'd say here for technical experts, which is really the phrase I'm using for anyone who's not a legal expert. So as, you, as Matthew said, you know, these might be the accountants, the architects, the engineers, the, the you know, also, you know, the, the, the medics, all sorts of sort of professionals who are, who are real experts in that process. So again, you see at the top of this box, I've got, again, I've got that general credibility that I might go in, go for. Then I look at the substance and I'd norm, I think of this normally in two ways so methodology and assumed facts because that, that's what these experts are doing they're choosing a methodology and they're, they're applying that methodology to the facts that they are assuming so you can attack them in both of those at all now I'll find quite often people will focus on the assumed facts I think it's it can be easier because you're not really engaging in the expertise on the assumed facts so if you're maybe starting out in cross-examination that might be an area to focus if you can demonstrate that 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 they have assumed that something happened on a particular day and it actually happened a year later or that, that as I said you know they've assumed that there was x amount of feedstock and it was a tenth or whatever that can be a very good way to undermine their that their opinions but I think it's also important if you can to step up to the, and cross-examine on the methodologies as well and that can become more difficult because it's more it almost engaging sometimes in some sort of almost a debate with the expert on the methodology why did they choose that methodology is it really appropriate and in particular have they implemented it if you are if you have the confidence to get right into the detailed schedules Behind the, behind the expert reports and demonstrate that whatever they've said they've done, they've not done it, or they've done it incorrectly, you know, their spreadsheets don't work or what have you, you can do huge damage to the expert. So it's, it's sort of a slightly more advanced cross-examining, but it can be very effective um, when you do it, because it's very difficult for experts to come back on that when you've clearly demonstrated they've made errors in their, in their um, reports. And if we could just quickly go to the next slide. Um, so generally, I've now got a few slides and I'll just go through these quickly because I know we don't have, have much time, but you'll have the material for later. Really, it's sort of the, the type of questions you might want to ask in relation to each of those boxes we were just looking at. So here in relation to expertise or credibility, um, you know, are they independent over IDG? Conditional fees. I ask almost every time about conditional fees to the experts. Every time I think maybe I won't bother this arbitration because I've asked for the last 10 arbitrations and everybody has said no, they're on a fixed fee or they're on a, an hourly rate. I think I'll just ask once more and the expert will actually admit that they are getting paid depending on the outcome of the arbitration, which is frankly astonishing. I mean, they cannot possibly be giving independent expert evidence, but I think it's worth asking. It only takes one minute and you could move on quickly otherwise. Also, the fees generated by the client or law firm can be an issue, as, as Matthew said, as, as lawyers, we often have our favorite experts, you know, people you know who will deliver on time, um, you know, a good quality report. It's tempting to use them again and again and again, but you do have to be careful that that might be seen to start impinging on their, their independence. Um, uh, the, the next bullet point it can be very useful with a lot of the professional experts because most professions have very detailed technical requirements as to when you are testifying in litigation or in arbitration. You know, things you must do, things you mustn't do. And so it's a very easy question to say early on in the cross-examination. So of course you've complied with your professional obligations, haven't you? Yes. You know, and then later on demonstrate that they clearly haven't because it's, it's a very easy points to make on those um, and, and it can severely undermine their credibility. Um, 
Other points that um, I'll look at, and if we could just go to the next slide, Kelly, please. So moving through the topics, you know, understand, quite often you'll find experts who've simply failed to understand what they're there for. Some people, experts, will actually think they are the arbitrators and will make findings as to who's responsible, you know, liability, you know, that so-and-so is entitled to an extension of times if you're doing construction, so-and-so is entitled to payment of this money. You know, that's not what the experts are there for. Where they've done that, you can clearly demonstrate um, they've not understood their role. But I'd say I think you sometimes have to be a little bit careful because you might have an expert who's not actually been an expert before. He's a genuine expert in his field, but hasn't been a testifying expert. So it doesn't maybe understand or has been badly instructed by a law firm who didn't really understand, but it doesn't, but their underlying substance of what they're saying is okay. So it's sort of a matter of judgment how much you might go in to attack an expert on that process. And then again, looking at that basis of opinion, uh, this can be a very easy and um, fruitful area of what information was made available to them. Some instructing law firms put very limited information in front of the experts because they know if they gave them the full documentary record that they would come up with an unfavorable finding. So then it can be very easy way to undermine the credibility of the expert if you can keep showing them documents that either they've not, never been shown before and really should have asked for because they're obvious documents or the documents that were on the record and they've just chosen not to look at or mention. So that can be, a, it's very painful for the experts. You can go through and you can do quite a lot of damage quite easily. And again, without even really having to engage in the expertise. So you're not having to worry about the fact that this person you know, is the world's leading expert. You're just demonstrating that they haven't been thorough and done their job properly as they went through. And then I think my time is pretty much up. So I would see, there are a few more slides, but um, I will leave those and you can look up. I know Kelly will be circulating the material, but I think for timing perspective, Kelly, I better stop and let Matthew and Muan have something to say on cross-examination as well. Great, thank you, Jane. Um, as Jane has mentioned, this uh, webinar will be recorded and we'll, we will be putting this up on the website. Uh, we will not be pr providing these uh, presentations uh, online, but anyone who'd be interested in getting a copy, please uh, do not uh, feel free to contact me separately. Um, as for the presentation, it was very informative, Jane, and thank you for that. Uh, I want to start off the panel discussion with an observation. Um, expert decision is often based on documents, materials, and evidence made available by the parties. Um, having the experience of working with a Korean company, I can say that um, there are definitely differences uh, in company culture, practices, and what constitutes as a norm. Uh, Jane had touched on this in her presentation in not only document retention, but accounting practices, record keeping, um, to just name, uh, name a few. So I have um, often considered knowledge and experience of working with a Korean company um, as an important factor to consider in, um, in selecting a party um, assisting expert. Um, Myung-an, um, this experience um, and choosing an expert, um, have you dealt with uh, this kind of concern? Uh, thank you. I think that's a very helpful question. I think if I may rewind a little bit, it does uh, provide you with certain room for pause when you deal with different entities and companies with their own internal procedures and um, a data bank and whatnot. But I think 
more often than not, and especially during these days, the fundamentals and the fundamental widely shared across uh, borderlines and nationalities. And it may sometimes or uh, to the relevant industry Melon, um, sorry, Melon, you're breaking in and out. Um, can you just repeat that one more time? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we were supposed to talk about, you know, the technological issues and the, you know, pros and cons of VC for, you know, having a hearing later on. But I think it's a good example of demonstrating what kind of challenges we may have in having VCs in turn. But, uh, you know, just um, just go back. I was just uh, hoping to address the fact that sometimes and more often than not during these, you know, times, uh, national borders matter less as opposed to the particular industry or the sector uh, of your client. If we were, for example, dealing with a Korean game company, um, IP company, dealing with a dispute or intellectual property dispute uh, against uh, uh, alleged you know, breaching party of the license agreement, you can count on your client to have an extremely detailed record keeping process and state-of-the-art technology to retain and record contemporaneous evidence. Similarly, in um, uh, trading or you know, uh, financing districts, I think there are certain global standards. Uh, and unless you meet those standards, you, you are not going to survive in your own industry. So Barring you know the arbitration or litigation or you know mediation and whatnot, uh, we've seen some fundamentals that are quite common across the board. But obviously, you sometimes would need to have a, a little bit of a handholding process for your client. Sometimes it is the very first arbitration or even litigation for your own client, and they are not necessarily uh, familiar with document retention process or the requirements thereof. And so the standard uh, document retention request and you know, uh, guidelines are obviously going to be provided well in advance. And um, being, being very keen uh, of, of the cultural uh, lack of familiarity with the adversarial process, especially the arbitration process on an international level could be quite helpful. I think that's a very uh, poignant and relevant point to make, and thank you for raising that. Thank you, Milan. Uh, Matthew, would you like to chime in on the cross-examination of experts topic? Just to, I, 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 I very much agree with what the two speakers have said. I think, um, particularly what Jane was saying, one needs to. Th th there's, there's a pressure upon you as counsel. Um, when you're facing an expert who has put in two or three reports totaling four or five hundred pages to launch onto some enormous cross-examination. Um, very often the client, there may be indirect pressure or direct or indirect pressure from the clients in that regard. Um, but as um, Jane was saying, one needs to focus very, very carefully on what one's trying to um, get out of the expert. Um, particularly in the context of, of, of arbitration. And of course, as, as Jane says, you know, you very much, you play 
the person, i.e. the tribunal, what does one think the tribunal needs to hear from? Um, there are, you know, one can, if, if one is trying to be too cute and going too short, you know, one can be tripped up by the point that one hasn't put um, a so-called critical point to an expert and is therefore deemed to have conceded it or admitted it. And um, whether that point gets traction um, depends on tribunals, but also ultimately depends on the courts at the seat in most places. Um, but generally, you know, the, the overall point is don't feel that you need to um, put every point to an expert and a 500 page expert report doesn't necessarily mean that you will get or need to cross-examine that expert for three days. Great point. Thank you, Matthew. Um, we will then go ahead and move on to our uh, next speaker, Myung-An. Uh, she will be presenting on the role of expert witnesses, their credibility and implication of an important case um, for, uh, Secretary of State for Home Department. Thank you, Mingan. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks again to Kelly, DHKIC, and everyone, frankly, who's attending today at an early or uh, late hour, depending on where you are. Um, today, the sequence of my presentation will proceed as follows. Next slide, please. It will first address the background, some of the basic background information pertaining to international arbitration involving uh, expert witnesses. Secondly, I'd like to um, relay some of the implications uh, arising from uh, the recent case of MN versus Secretary of State. That's the 2020 case uh, from the English Court of Appeal. Uh, with a view of addressing uh, the implication, particularly on the credibility of expert witness evidence. And finally, I'd like to share some of the practical uh, considerations, takeaways or observations and uh, open the floor for the questions as well. Next slide, please. So just by International arbitration, as you are well aware, it uh, incorporates a number of um, legal cultures, including Anglo-American and common law system. But the system of um, assessing you know, expert witnesses um, may share some different dynamics, say compared uh, uh, to the traditional court system. I am a Korean American, so part of my training is um, in the US court. And in terms of US court litigation, you see witness evidence you know, coming from direct statements from the witness on stand um, and during trial. And it is heavily regulated by the rules and leading questions are strictly limited in most of the cases. So prior to giving live testimony, testimony on stand, each witness in US court litigation would be subject to uh, a process called deposition uh, by the opposing counsel. And the purpose of that process is to basically help flush out the material issues and contents of what that witness will say on um, the witness stand during the trial. 
For further questions, um, the opposing counsel has to put uh, on the same witness on direct examination of his or own case because unlike in international opposing counsel may cross-examine witnesses only on the matters that had been addressed on direct examination during that trial. Uh, by contrast, on, uh, on the level of international arbitration, you know, direct witness evidence comes from uh, statement. Uh, and uh, for expert witnesses, uh, it's uh, going to be provided in the form of uh, expert reports. And obviously, there will be less strict prohibition on leading questions during cross-examination. And as for the direct examination, it will be limited to a very succinct affirmation of the written statement for witness. So by implication, due to this um, dichotomy between what the uh, court litigation system as opposed to international arbitration, in the latter case, we see a wider discretion and less uh, prohibition on the scope of questions during the hearing. And naturally, uh, as Jane and Matthew had helpfully pointed out, the ability of the council to bring out um, and appreciate the nuanced uh, jurisdictional differences and to effectively examine um, the witness on cross-examination will be quite critical. Um, Next slide, please. Next slide, please, Kelly. I think we may um, address the import or implication of the MN versus Secretary of State um, as part of our presentation today. Now, against the backdrop of what we've just addressed, um, it is quite helpful to consider the implication of MN versus Secretary of State, because it's a decision that did directly address the uh, expert credibility and the framework of analyses that should be adopted uh, by the fact finder. And in that case, it was the uh, authority of the Home Office, which uh, as I understand is akin to immigration authorities um, in other jurisdictions. And um, that framework analysis was to be addressed in deciding whether someone, some applicant is a victim of human trafficking, qualified to receive government um, aid and support. Um, it did address you know, the proper approach to uh, expert evidence and reinforced the principle that the fact finder should give credence and holistic, holistic review uh, of the decision-making um, process to ensure that expert evidence is properly taken into consideration. Uh, the case also alerted to the risk of unqualified fact finder in speculating about issues requiring expertise. And in that case, the issue was about uh, the medical uh, causes of PTSD, post-traumatic um, syndrome. And the role of expert uh, was also part of the analysis uh, stipulated by the court in that case it did basically give credence to the fact that it's going to be inappropriate to discount the value of the expert evidence on the basis of a separate incidental set of background facts. And in that case, it was related to some inconsistent 
facts or um, failure to disclose some facts by the claimant or applicant. And um, it was not, it was actually indicated as uh, the case that it's not the role of an expert report to uh, undertake some kind of assessment on the applicant's factual account or accounts that had previously given to the judicial process. So in sum, I think the case is uh, helpful in highlighting the principle that there is a unique realm of expertise and, and, and um, respect to be provided uh, to the expert evidence. And the credibility and weight um, to be given to the expert opinion cannot be discounted in a similar manner that's akin to the standards that are uh, applied to say a factual layperson's witness. Um, I personally saw another implication of the case. It basically reconfirmed the unique nature of the expert evidence. And I think during the earlier part of our um, seminar, our panelists did allude to the uh, requirement for the expert to uh, prove it's his or her independence and the track records that are um, going to be assessed by the council in advance or even by the opposing council on cross-examination. And so it's relevant to take a look at or even revisit some of the uh, content criteria set out by the IBA. Um, and it does provide that each expert uh, witness statement or expert report must state you know, the description of the instructions given, the methodologies or assumptions or facts that are provided in order for that expert to provide that uh, expert opinion and uh, a statement of independence as well as affirmation of genuine belief are all not just perfunctory mechanisms, but those are the ones that are specifically uh, catered to uh, ensuring that uh, the level of credibility is uh, continued um, on a rolling basis. So next slide, please. So then it brings us to the next step. Uh, what are then the practical considerations and takeaways that we may consider uh, against this backdrop of uh, witness credibility, uh, also in line with um, the recent ruling. The first item would be establishing credibility of your own expert witness. And there have been a number of cases or war stories that we have heard, and they're all very helpful. And as indicated, in terms of your own expert witness, um, unlike in the court litigation uh, context, the direct examination of your own witness will be quite limited. Um, and so the content of your expert report, the written report to be provided your, by your expert report must be well-prepared, uh, verified, and substantiated by reasonable assumptions, accurate methodologies, and contemporaneous evidence supporting what is being said by the expert. Those are uh, quite uh, basics, but then they are quite key in terms of ensuring that you uh, obtain the result that uh, your client deserves. In terms of preparing for hot tubbing, I've um, kind of thought about the possibility in the context of establishing credibility of your own expert, because 
it does provide you with your uh, case and with your expert with an opportunity to have uh, the experts from each side confer uh, with each other on a particular issue of dispute and narrow down uh, for the sake of efficiency, narrow down the issues of genuine dispute. And it's, qu it's quite effective in terms of um, enhancing the uh, timeline and uh, efficiency of the case. And it oftentimes encourages the party to comment directly on the uh, specific methods and comments and just prevent each party from bringing around, around the push and help, help save the time. Um, one caveat, however, is that this hot topic methodology is not without any risk. Uh, depending on the case, um, you may want to consider the nature of the evidence uh, as well as um, an opportunity to anticipate and prepare every possible question that can come um, in advance. Um, in terms of the second item, challenging um, credibility of uh, the adverse expert, um, you know, there are available measures to address uh, this daunting task, but it's not impossible to overcome the challenge. First question usually uh, that I look into is uh, the type of the adverse expert you're going to face. There are essentially two different types of the experts uh, that are uh, who are adverse to your case. One would be uh, an expert who's intentionally misleading, dishonest. And then the other type would be someone who is very well-intended and uh, well-meaning, but uh, somebody who's not well-informed and may have based his or her opinion on uh, incomplete or misleading set of assumptions. Now, in terms of the former, it's easier because you basically need to prove the bias of the person with contemporaneous documents and uh, consider the need to assist the tribunal in articulating the reasons behind your assertions. Um, but in case of the latter, you need to expose the inconsistency in the method and the assumptions adopted by that uh, misled or misguided expert. And um, in order to obtain concession, um, obviously you need to have a level of humility because you're not an expert in the area oftentimes. And that expert knows a lot more about that particular area than you do. So in a way, there has to be a practical approach in terms of discrediting that, discrediting that particular witness by showing inconsistencies with prior views of his or her own or other well-established texts or expert reports, oftentimes your own expert report, and obtain admissions on undisputed uh, principles or uh, supporting uh, documents in your own case. Another possible measure would be to obtain concession on the existence of alternative um, and viable assumptions and methodologies that he may not or she may not have adopted. Um, I've had an opportunity to cross-examine um, recently a quantum expert as well as a legal expert and the approach uh, taken in each of those cases uh, differed uh, slightly um, based on the nature of the questions and disputes given. In case of the quantum expert, you, as indicated uh, earlier, have to admit 
the high likelihood that the computation of that expert uh, is likely to be quite accurate. Um, depending on the quality of the forensic um, test that you're able to conduct, however, the underlying assumptions for um, that quantum uh, computation uh, could be subject to question. So in short, in testing the quantum expert, it's not usually helpful based on my experience to assert against the computation itself, but it may be helpful to agree on the difference uh, in the assumptions or the nature of the assumptions underlying that computation and uh, lead the expert to concede that if your assumptions were to be adopted, that it'd be logical to conclude that your own assertion or your own stance would be correct. Um, that is slightly different from the approach that uh, I would usually make in dealing with legal expert. Once again, the legal expert is uh, most often than not, it, he or she has deep knowledge in the particular area of law. Um, and uh, that is a given fact, but key strategy against that backdrop maybe to um, address the difference between the principle of the law that's not disputed and the particular applicability of that principle in the facts of your case. Uh, about a couple of years ago, uh, we were dealing with an ICC arbitration in which the constitutional uh, legal principle under Korean law was at issue. And one of the adverse uh, expert witness was a former justice uh, from the Constitutional Court of Korea. So obviously in terms of uh, expertise, uh, he was uh, going to be respected, but we were able to question whether he would make a distinction between the premise or the type of the statute that was at issue, whether or not it was mailum in se as opposed to mailum in prohibitum. And obviously the latter uh, type of uh, statute would be um, one that would be less uh, subject to parties' expectation of uh, status quo. And so uh, in terms of uh, distinguishing between um, the minute nuanced differences and assumptions uh, could be quite helpful. I think in terms of time, uh, I'm reaching uh, the limit, but one final point I wanted to make was in relation to language culture and the technology factor in international arbitration. Um, in certain cases, uh, um, we have uh, an expert witnesses included who do not speak the language uh, that are familiar, that are native language of, of the tribunal members. And it may be helpful to uh, delineate those differences and cultural nuances and ensure that you are well prepared to provide uh, very competent interpreter um, and the sequence of that interpretation as well as the ability to have a neutral checker to provide a, a, a very um, valid process along the way would be quite uh, helpful and highly recommended. In terms of technology, we've kind of seen a little bit of technical glitch, but one just final thing I'd like to point out is it's always helpful to prepare, prepare, make sure that you're prepared well enough to uh, know, you know what is going to be happening and also after that, prepare more to ensure that nothing wrong can happen.
So uh, in terms of um, making sure that, you know, your bandwidth technology, audio, you know, facilities are well tested and jointly verified by each party could be quite helpful as well. So that concludes my presentation. And I thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Milan. That was really great uh, points for us to consider. Um, so the final takeaway I got was check, 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 and prepare, 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 right? So uh, with that, um, I will go into the panel discussion. Uh, we have a question by the audience on this, uh, the topic that you have actually discussed. So I think I wanna go ahead and kick off uh, the panel discussion with that question. Uh, it says, could the panel please try to address particularly to how to manage the single joint expert um, and hot topping experts? Um, should there be any different tactics when comparing to manage the common general experts or the same principally? Um, anyone, anybody wanna kick us off? I'm happy to start off with that one, Kelly. Um, I, I think the single joint experts are difficult because I think as lawyers, we generally like to exert a lot of control over the case and the evidence that we present in front of a tribunal. And obviously once you've got a expert who's instructed by both parties, um, that becomes more difficult. Um, so I, I think also you just need to make sure, it's very important to make sure that you, you trust, there's common trust in that expert and that there aren't side conversations happening. I think that's something that can cause concern. They might not be happening, but if you think they are, that, that, that's a worry and undermines the credibility of that expert. I think there also needs to be the ability to agree instructions up front, agree the flow of material to that expert and make sure that that's tracked. Because quite often you'll find people send the experts things, but don't actually really keep a note of what, what there are. So I try to have a common secure depository where everybody who's anyone sends something to the expert puts it in there as well so that you know what they've had but also to have the opportunity to see draft findings and be able to comment. Because quite often, I think that process is misunderstood because some people will think you're trying to influence or change the expert's opinion. But what will often happen is that the expert is flooded with a lot of information and simply won't, might have overlooked what you consider as an important document or important fact. And so having that ability to go back to the expert and say, have you looked at this? Have you considered this issue? Um, and being able to do that in a way that's transparent so both parties see that happening before they issue their final findings. Because it can be quite difficult if you are unhappy with the findings of a joint expert, it's quite difficult to sort of cross-examine them. It's a bit like when the party have their own expert. It's, it's more, sort of more uncomfortable cross-examining and challenging the expert, the opinions of a joint expert than it is of challenging the opinions of the party opposite you. So I think you do need to have an element of control there over the process to make sure that it properly reflects your client's case. Thank you, Jane. Matthew, any comments? No, no, not, not really, I agree. I agree with that. I, I would just say that I think in, in terms of single joint experts or just to be clear on the terminology, tribunal experts or tribunal appointed experts, as, as, as I said at the outset, is that I, I actually think there's more scope to use them than they actually are used. I think tribunals actually shy away, um, certainly non-construction cases, from, from using them in circumstances where actually 
um, a, a, a timely engagement of a tribunal expert and then properly instructed really can help to narrow issues. Thank you, Matthew. I, I totally agree with that. Um, we have a comment here uh, from an audience um, who have mentioned that he has sat in a hot tub and found it very effective for two reasons. Um, Week-long negotiations of the agenda to be discussed in the hot tub effectively focused on the case, on the key commercial issues, and two, the tribunal had the opportunity to ask their own questions. Um, and his question, uh, after his comments, were why are hot tubs not used almost always. I'm sure there's a preference uh, and there's um, issues concerned uh, around hot tubbing. Um, Myung-an, do you want to take this on? Sure, I think that's a, a very good question. And um, that does give me you know, a bit of existential, existential angst as well. Uh, it's, I think, may relate to the very fact that arbitrations differ on a case-by-case -case basis. And sometimes before a party decides to go ahead with this uh, hot tubbing, um, you know, one may consider the uh, strength of proceeding with that uh, process. Obviously, we've talked about efficiency, um, but another strategic decision uh, uh, factor is the very fact that the tribunals remember the answers to the question that they asked. And so if you allow this hot tubbing process and let the experts explain in their own words to the tribunal as to what this um, distinct specific issues in dispute uh, may be and how they be, may be addressed by each uh, expert uh, and, and reconcile those differences along the way, it can be quite powerful, quite a powerful tool. But at the same time, uh, it, it just depends on the nature of the disagreement and the scope and um, the issues that are uh, on the table. And it's sometimes difficult for either or both parties to uh, proceed on the basis that the risks uh, outweigh the uh, benefits or vice versa. It's going to be rele relevant to the strategic decision. Thank you, uh, Myung-an. Jane, would you like to comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, certainly my arbitrations, and maybe that is just because they tend to be the more construction or very technical arbitrations, we almost always have a hot tub. But I'd say what would happen is it's normally there will be traditional cross-examination first, and then afterwards, there'll be a hot tub by discipline. So the, tri the, the tribunal will have already sort of had the benefits of the evidence being challenged by the by, by counsel. And then they go into the hot tub. And in the hot tub, certainly my experience, and I know there was a question about this. My experience is it's the, it's the tribunal who asks the vast majority of the questions. They'll ask counsel if they've got any follow-up questions, but it was very much a tribunal-led process. And I've seen that both from common law and civil law um, tribunals. That seems to be sort of at least becoming a common practice in the type of arbitrations I work in. Yeah, yes, can I just add one thing? I think in, in its original conception, um, Hot, hot tubbing was the, as, as conceived by Wolfgang Peter probably 20 odd years ago now, the tribunal was to control the process at the outset. So the tribunal would ask all the questions initially and then counsel would get to follow up at, at the end, what Jane and I would say cross-examination right at the end. As Jane says, very often now, 
that what, what I think Wolfgang Preeter would say is that pure order is flipped. So you do cross-examination first and then um, you can, the tribunal comes in at the end with its questions, if you like. So claimant's expert is cross-examined, respondent's expert is cross-examined. They both remain sequestered or they both remain there or available, if you like. And then the tribunal come in with their questions. But I think if you ask Wolfgang Peter, he would say, no, no, that's not right. The tribunal should be properly prepared. They should take control and they should do it all themselves initially. And I don't want this whole process taken over by common lawyers trying to cross-examine. I may be putting his words in his mouth, but that's what I think might be said. I'm not saying which is right or wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Um, this is a very interesting topic. Um, I think hot topping has uh, been more frequently used um, than in the past, and it's definitely an interest area. Um, we have a very engaging audience today, and there's lots of questions. Um, but due to time, I will only cover a few. My apologies for that. Um, one of the questions we received was, um, when, for example, when you are a claimant and you engage both a dirty expert consultant and a clean expert witness, should interaction between the dirty and clean experts be avoided in order to avoid allegations that the clean expert is biased or tainted? Um, Matthew, could you kick us off? Kelly, sorry, I lost you. Can you just restate that? I, I heard only the very first part of what you said. Sure, let me let me repeat that. Um, when you are a claimant and you engage both a dirty expert and a consultant, a clean expert witness, should interaction between the dirty and the clean experts be avoided in order to avoid allegations that clean expert is biased or tainted? I think not avoid, I don't think it needs to be completely avoided, but you just need to bear in mind that the, te the testifying expert, the e expert giving evidence, um, may well or probably will be asked to disclose the full basis of his or her instructions. Um, and that's, of course, not just a letter that's often finalised the night before the expert report is signed saying, you know, you are instructed to opine on the following nine things. But in theory, um, um, well, not more than in theory, in practice, um, anything else that has been sent to or imparted to the expert that might affect his or her opinion. So if your testifying expert has received a lot of information um, from the consultant expert or dirty expert or had lots of meetings and so on, then that's, that's potentially at least fair game for cross-examination. Thank you, Matthew. Jane or Myungan, any comments on this? I'd say it's a sort of slightly on a slightly related topic. I mean, something that I've been trying to do with asking as counsel or ordering as arbitrator is, to, as I said, to have a common depository of information that's provided to the experts and to the testifying experts. Because one of the issues I sometimes have is that, that you'll get one expert who doesn't mention a huge amount of information that's been provided to them. Well, in my view, that for the experts one really need to have parity of information. So whatever non-privileged information has been provided by a party to an expert, they clearly thought was potentially relevant and therefore it should be available to, to the experts on both sides. Otherwise they often talk at cross purposes. So I think again, 
that might be one reason for having your dirty expert who you might show some material to before you then show it to your clean expert because you'll know that if you show that information to the clean expert it may well end up on the arbitration record and you know be, be fair game for cross-examination by the other side so I think in that respect that's where for me I would be keeping the um, I would be wanting to keep that barrier of interaction but actually having conversations and discussions about the expertise that's one reason why you bring in the dirty expert because it might be an area that's so technically advanced that you would feel that as lawyers you can't really engage with that topic properly. Right. Thank you for that. I think that's a really great point about this uh, disclosure issue. While I have you on, Jane, there's a question directed for you. In construction disputes, can a claims consultant consultancy supply both claims consultants uh, during the project and expert services during a subsequent arbitration? What are the risks in this situation? This is an issue that comes up all the time. And to some extent, it's a bit like having the, it's the same similar to the dirty and clean experts, because mm -hmm. the, um, the individuals who have been acting um, as, for example, cost consultants or claims consultants through the course of the project are to some extent sort of dirty. They know, they know everything. Um, I think that, so there's that issue, but there's also the independence. And I certainly think it's very difficult for someone who has been working as an advisor, and quite often will have been, these types of experts will often have been advising on legal matters, on strategy, on, on the, how the claims are put forward, to then put a different hat on and appear as an independent testifying expert. So I would generally recommend to clients that they, they don't do that. Um, I think you do need to bring in someone different. That doesn't mean the claims consultants all, you know, sort of get go away. They can be a very useful part of the team helping the lawyers with all of the facts and the underlying issues that they'll be very familiar with. So that knowledge isn't lost. But I personally think it's very difficult for them credibly to be portrayed as independent experts later on. Sometimes it's okay, but it will depend on the issues and quite how embedded and involved they were early on. Right. Thank you, Jane. Um, one last question, um, and this is from Myung Han. Um, can you explain in details how to manage the language interpretation challenge? As at the end of the day, the understanding and judgment of two sides argument will be highly based understanding of the language interpretation. Uh, but very often judge and lawyer might not be able to speak the given witness's language. And how can a lawyer and judge know the interpretation is effective? I've actually had this issue come up several times um, in an ad hoc arbitration in Chile um, and also in Korea as well with the Korean language. So um, I'm sure you've come across this uh, issue as well. Absolutely. I think there are certain unilateral measures you can take and then you also have the opportunity to consult with the counterparty and uh, uh, seek the, I guess, uh, order of the tribunal, procedural order, uh, incidental it may be, uh, in advance of the hearing to ensure that there's not going to be uh, a very uh, profuse objections on mere technicalities. But if there are uh, a very specific material difference in the way the particular interpreter uh, translates a certain term that's key to the dispute, then that's going to be uh, ordered by the tribunal uh, by way of um, prior procedural order. 
to make that objection. But if the procedure order of the tribunal in advance uh, provides this uh, guideline for each party to refrain from making unnecessary and extraneous uh, objections merely to delay the process or to stall the, the uh, continuum of the counterparty's examination. And that uh, tends to be quite helpful. And we've utilized that uh, in our prior cases as well. I've mentioned some unilateral measures that you can take, and those are you know, basics, such as making sure that you know competent and neutral interpreters and a list of such qualified candidates in advance so that they can provide qualified work and services uh, on time. You also may need to have uh, some bilingual checker uh, in the room so that the neutral uh, checking system is in play. And uh, in the event there's any kind of objection, that person can step forward and make sure that the tribunal is assisted without unnecessary delay. Oftentimes, it's quite unfortunate, but I've, I've seen some cases where uh, certain counsel kind of utilize or tries to utilize the language barrier as a way to delay the process. And that should not have a place. And um, some of the unilateral as well as the assistance of the tribunal in advance could be helpful. And uh, it all depends on the specific nature of the, uh, I guess, the case. But uh, there are certain basic rudimentary measures that you can implement in advance to prevent that. Thank you, Milan. Um, you mentioned the checker, and usually I've seen in often all the cases we have the checker on both par both parties. So the party that um, employed the expert will have their own checker to make sure their experts are doing it right, and then the opposing uh, counsel often would have their own checker to make sure it's done right. So I guess the job will be on the counsels. Um, to make sure that the tribunal is getting the adequate translation uh, or the interpretation. Right, and if push comes to shove, and if one checker does not really provide credible and accurate interpretation at the end of the day, that can be cross-checked after the hearing or even you know, right after the first or second day of the hearing as well. So I think the pressure is on both sides to be accurate and to be uh, forthcoming. Thank you, Myung-an, that's really helpful. Um, it's, we've went over time, <laughs> I'm sorry for that, but we've had so many questions and we haven't been able to cover it all. Uh, I want to thank you all in for tuning in today um, and for such an engaging audience. Um, I hope you found the presentations helpful as I did. Um, you always learn something new every day and I certainly did today. Um, a big thank you to our speakers, uh, Matthew and Jane, who is uh, logging in from London <laughs> and uh, Myung-an um, from Korea. Uh, it was truly a pleasure having you all here um, and such an engaging um, speakers and discussion was uh, very fabulous. Um, I will be putting up the recording of today's webinar on our website, as I mentioned earlier. Um, if you missed any part of it, um, please um, check it out. Uh, we will also be uh, providing our speakers contact information on our website as well. Um, but you, you will be able to Google them, <laughs> um, very popular names. So um, if you have any questions that you were not able to get, please feel free to contact them um, separately with inquiries um, directly. And thank you everyone um, for joining us today and hope you have a fabulous rest of the day and rest of the week. Uh, thank you, Matthew, Jane and Myung-an um, for your presentation today. Thank you. Thank you for asking us. Thank you. Thanks, Bye -bye. everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>